Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I'm Matt Jolly, and this is History Worth Saving. In 2018, the Pew Research Center discovered the majority of Americans, 57%, say they only know some of their neighbors. 23% of adults under the age of 30... They have no clue about who any of their neighbors are. 58%, nearly 60% here, say they've never met up with their neighbors at a party or even a get-together. In the city, it's a lot worse. 24%, 28% in the suburbs, 40% out in the country. They say they know some of their neighbors. They got to help do the work around there. But if you pay attention to the news right now in our country, we are on the verge of becoming more tribal than ever. When you combine all of this division with the fact that we really don't know those who live closest to us, that paints a scary picture. It's hard to like someone you don't know. It's hard to be empathetic towards a cause or even have an understanding of why something should be saved or torn down if you just don't know. We need to get to know our neighbors. And that's what History Worth Saving is all about. This is just you and me sitting down, having a conversation with someone we should get to know. No complicated production, I promise, no fancy edits, no twisting of words. This is just a conversation. But it's only going to work if you help. And my hope is that you'll bring people to this table, people that you and I should have a conversation with. Maybe it's the lady down the street saving the local theater, the, the man who makes sandwiches for the school kids in Macon, Georgia, just because they're hungry. Simply put, I want to talk to your neighbors. And at the end of the day, it's these stories that are history worth saving. St. Peter, he stands at the gates of heaven, and Beau Lamour guards the West, at least his father's version. Beau is the caretaker and the writing partner for his father's literary estate, the works of America's favorite storyteller, as we said in our our opening season, Louis L'Amour, the uh, the most powerful man in the West. Beau L'Amour, his son, joins us right now. Beau, thanks for being here. Hi, Matt. Do you know your neighbor? Uh, I know a couple of my neighbors, yeah. See? <laughs> We're off to a good start. But, but, you know, it's Los Angeles. I don't necessarily know a lot of my neighbors. Well, here's here's where I want to go with this. Um, your father's stories, they often depend on neighbors. I mean, they're either the good guy or the bad guy. But but usually the stories from the West, they paint a picture of of people coming together to solve a problem, to render justice. And, and I don't know, maybe maybe there's something there. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But I, I kind of think the world needs a little Louis L'Amour right now. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I lived, um, it's an interesting thing about neighbors and, and people knowing one another. And, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes you want, uh, to, you know, sometimes you want more privacy than, than your neighbors can give you. And sometimes it's wonderful to have all of these people in your, in your community. It's, uh, I've lived in, in small towns where 
you know, you knew everybody and, and a lot of people were kind of up in your business. And I've lived in big cities where you didn't know too many people, but people were very nice about leaving you alone. So there's a, there's a, you know, it's, it's just a mixture of, um, of feelings and uh, a mixture of, of attributes depending on where, wherever you are. I also lived for about a year in Australia where probably because of the very low population density, um, everybody is exceptionally friendly. I mean, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So, uh, uh, so I don't know. I kind of, I kind of go, uh, I kind of go both ways about it. I wish I, um, I'm very happy to know more about my neighbors and have my neighbors know more about me. And at the same time, you know, I think I, uh, uh, I think that the, as, as much as everybody knows, if everybody's willing to give the other people a certain amount of space, that's, a uh, that's a very good thing. It's a very LA answer, isn't it? I mean, they, you, as you've often said to me in our, in our conversations, people went out West to try something new, to kind of get away from everything. But, uh, we see that sometimes in your dad's writings though. And I think that that's interesting that it's, it's pulled forward, uh, even, even out of those stories today. Tell me what's new because you do have, you do, I want to get this right off the bat there. There's a new, a new release coming out later this month in November. Uh, yeah, the Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures Volume 2, which is the uh, part of our uh, a program that we have been working on for a few years is now um, is now kind of winding down. And so Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures, to a great extent, tries to tell the story behind the story of a lot of aspects of my dad's career. Um, the Probably the most important part of it are a series of postscripts that I have put into his old uh, novels that um, uh, sort of tell the story behind the story of that particular novel, what was going on in dad's life, what he was trying to do with his career, things of that sort. And, um, and each one of those is, each one of those is different. Um, the, uh, if you were to look in, the new edition of Down the Long Hills, you would find um, a, a bunch of information about sequel, a sequel to that story that my dad intended to write and a few chapters of the beginning of that sequel. If you were to look into the postscript that is in the novel Caligan, that's all about us driving around in the Mojave Desert researching the forts along the um, the desert road, which was the military road that connected Arizona to the Los Angeles area. And, uh, and so, you know, many of them are very different. Uh, the one for, uh, Kiowa trail is not out yet, but that postscript has a lot to do with my dad's, um, friendship with Catherine Hepburn. He actually wrote that, that story for Catherine Hepburn, um, although by the time he got it out, she was very busy taking care of Spencer Tracy because he was, you know, not doing very well in the last few years of his life. And, uh, that, you know, never turned into a movie with Catherine Hepburn, but he, he definitely had intended it for her. And, uh, so there's a different, you know, different story in each one of those. And then the lost treasures volumes one and two, the second one, which I just mentioned is coming out this month. Um, in November is um, 
Those are pieces of stories that dad didn't finish or treatments, which is a, a description of a story that a writer will put together for a publisher or a movie company to try and sell that story. So a treatment is, um, it's not really the same as reading a short story or a novel, because like I said, it's kind of a description of what the writer will do rather than the thing they will actually do. But those can be, you know, anywhere from three or four pages to 40 pages. And, uh, and there's also a couple of uh, unpublished short stories in these books. And uh, I take whatever piece it is, whether it's unfinished or finished and, and try and say what dad, again, what dad was trying to do with it and, um, and where he was in his career when he was writing it. And if it's unfinished, um, I use his notes and outlines and things like that to sort of project forward what might've happened in the story and how he might've gone ahead to, uh, uh, to wrap it up. The third phase, third piece of, uh, Louis Lemoore's Lost Treasures, which came out last year, is uh, his first novel, which was unpublished from, you know, the, the 1930s, which he wrote, started writing in 1938. And it's called No Traveler Returns. And it's a, a piece of one of what we call his yandering stories. So the first, the first type of thing that Louis ever tried to write in his life were more kind of uh, maybe Hemingway-esque stories about his early life and the environment that he uh, lived in when he was traveling around the world as a merchant seaman and traveling the country as a hobo and uh, sometimes prize fighter. And, uh, and so he wrote, he wrote a number of those stories and they're published in the um, short story collection Yandering. And then there's this novel, No Traveler Returns, which kind of caps off that, uh, that part of his career. And I want to put in a yeah. plug for that because it, it is an excellent work. I enjoyed it. Uh, that's where we met. Uh, was that's uh, when you were promoting that book and we, it's covered on a, on a previous episode of, uh, of yours on this, on this story and, uh, and, and show. So I appreciate that. It, it was a great, great read. Thank you. How, how does this fit in to, to his narrative overall, I mean, when you when you look at these, there has to be something that kind of stands out personally uh, to you. Maybe maybe a surprise. Uh, it, are you still finding that uh, while you work I'm on definitely, this? Yeah, I'm definitely still finding surprises. It was uh, in, in the beginning when I started the uh, to prepare the Lost Treasures material for for publication. I thought that I might have an interesting story. Um, for a number of the individual stories, but it would be, you know, just the individual stories. And, and one of the things that I discovered was that there, there really is an overarching narrative there of how dad started writing. Uh, uh, he, he got some success in the pulp magazine world, writing all kinds of different stories, crime stories and adventure stories and things like that. And then, uh, after World War II, the demand for Westerns uh, was tremendous, and he started writing Westerns. And he broke into uh, the business of writing paperback originals, so novels, um, uh, by writing Westerns. And then as soon as he had some success under his belt, some 12 to 15 marginally successful Western novels, um, 
he wanted to branch out and start writing things in other genres. And the publishers were just not interested in that. They wanted to keep him selling the thing that was, that was very popular and that he was doing fairly well with. And he struggled for a few years to try and break out and do other things and nothing was effective. And then he kind of backed off and said, okay, well, if nobody wants my uh, non-Western genre material, I'm going to start trying to change the Western genre and how my fans understand what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to write things that, everybody can comfortably call Westerns or frontier stories or something like that. And so not, you know, not be bothered by the fact that I'm, I'm adding these other elements. And so, uh, you know, he slowly started interjecting new and different aspects into the, the Western novels. He did a contemporary Western, you know, set in the late fifties or early sixties, that sort of flashed back to cover an event in the old West. That's uh, the broken gun. Um, he did uh, a couple of kind of international Westerns. So uh, Riley's luck is the best example of that, which spends takes place in the 1870s and eighties. But uh, a lot of the action in Riley's luck um, occurs in Europe at that time. And, uh, and then uh you know, he did some <clears throat> he did some things that took place on the early frontier, say just before and after the Revolutionary War. He went back to the earliest times in um, American history. You know, kind of Elizabethan England and what was going on in the uh, fr- on the frontier in the United States at that time. And then he wrote stories like um, uh, the Californios and Haunted Mesa. The Californios, in particular, being a transitional one because it was a it takes place in california in the 1830s in a spanish and mexican california where the people from the united states are the illegal immigrants and uh and it also has uh an element of science fiction to it and so he he basically started trying to stretch the western genre and make it someplace where he could play around with new and different ideas in a way that writing traditional westerns would not um, I knew that he did all those things. What was really surprising was to discover that he had um, that he had planned it, and mm-hmm. that he had, you know, he he basically made one attempt to break out of writing westerns, and then he made this other attempt to just sort of change how people perceived westerns in a way that would allow him to do different um, different things. He never talked about that. Never heard him say a word about it when I was a kid. But uh, when I started doing my research, the, the plan was pretty obvious. That's interesting. You know, I guess he'll, he'll truly arrive as, a, as an American uh, entertainer and author when, uh, when they start performing his works on stage in modern time like they do with Shakespeare, right? That's uh, <laughs> when they, they, make the, they remake uh, the movie, you know, and it's, uh, it's modern time. But th- that'll be interesting to see. Uh, what a cool, what a cool, uh, a cool insight there. What, what do you, uh, what do you think he'd say today? I mean, where we're at, what, what would Louis's advice be right now to all of us? 
when you say where we're at, what are you talking right about? Right now, in, in, on, on the cusp of 2020, um, what do you think he'd have to say to us right now? If he, if he just popped into the room, what would he say sitting here at this table? Oh, I don't know. Probably just calm down and take the long view of things. My dad lived through some very, very radical periods. You know, he was uh, uh, on his own working as a longshoreman and a merchant seaman and a miner and a lumberjack in the 1920s, times when uh, the strife between, um, let's say, labor and management was so severe that, you know, labor blew up things that belonged to management and management machine gunned labor. Um, there have been, there have been wild times in the United States. And I think he would basically say, you know, you guys haven't gotten anywhere near what I've seen in my life. By my books. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's fascinating. Uh, to, to go back through, I, I still love uh, one of my favorites, and I know you worked on some of this, but uh, The Education of a Wandering Man. It kind of lays out his, his path, and I think it's, a great, I think it's a, great, a great book. I think it's a necessary reading for, uh, for just about anybody. Uh, it, it should be. Well, it definitely, you know, it definitely shows how reading has a, you know, you know what kind of an impact that reading can have on, on someone. My, my dad you know, didn't make it through the 10th grade and, uh, the, the family kind of fell on hard times and had to, uh, live on the road traveling from job to job. And he, you know, he made up, uh, for his lack of education by reading everything he could find. If you were to go on our Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures uh, website and poke around. You'll have to poke kind of deep. I, I'm, I'm not going to walk you through the exact <laughs> menu of how to get right. there. But if you poke around a bit, um, there's a list of pretty much every book he read between um, 1930 and 1988. And, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds. I shouldn't even say it's hundreds. It's thousands of books. And, uh, and you can see how he was you know, he was really managing his own education. Mm. Um, in some ways, it was much better than a university education. In some ways, it wasn't quite the same thing. And that the wonderful thing about a university education, at least in the, the days when it was uh, functioning at its best, was there was a great interplay of ideas and students would react to one another's ideas and professors would react to students' ideas and, and everybody would have their ideas challenged. And I think my dad lost out on that, but he certainly did more book study than, you know, almost anybody ever did in uh, their college education. That's for sure. Many times over. That's one of those qualities of an exceptional human, right? I mean, we, we all, I think, I think we all have exceptional qualities, but to, to, for someone like your father to have the, you know, the, the wherewithal to, I'm going to keep a list. I'm going to keep a list of everything I've ever read. Uh, that's pretty impressive. You don't hear about that a lot. Well, he was, he was highly motivated. Um, his, his family had been, you know, not, not well off, but they had been middle-class and his older 
uh, brother and sister in particular, had gotten uh, a fairly good education and had gone on to um, really make something of themselves intellectually. So his um, uh, the oldest member of his family was his sister, and uh, she had gone on to be uh, uh, she'd gotten an, a good education for a young woman in the you know late 19th century and early 20th century. And uh, she had gone on to college. She had been a librarian. She had been a school teacher. She had been a uh, high school principal. And then after uh, a hiatus, um, she ended up, and this is, would be after World War II now, and at, at the, the point I'm, I'm at. Um, she, she went to work, I believe, as the first secretary, or first kind of executive secretary who was supposed to rein in and control the intellectual output of the Stanford Research Institute, which, you know, studied all kinds of incredibly wild stuff. I mean, everything from ESP to what neighborhood to locate Disneyland in. And they were a major think tank. They still are. And, um, and then dad's brother, his oldest brother was a, uh, uh, an aide to a number of politicians. He was the foreign desk editor for the script scripts, Howard, newspaper chain so he was handling you know he's basically the guy in charge of all of the foreign correspondence that they had he was the intelligence officer for the port of new orleans during the beginning of world war ii and then he went back into his press role and uh covered the four-party conferences four power conferences at uh, yalta and potsdam and things like that. So, I mean, he was like right at, he was sitting there taking notes while the guys who, uh, you know, figured out how to fight World War II figured out how to end it. And then he was uh, a uh, assistant or secretary to um, one of the U.S. ambassadors to uh, mainland China, or na nationalist China, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's Chinese government right before they left uh, the mainland to go to Taiwan. An interesting family, nonetheless. But uh, yeah, and so, well, Dad was, you know, Dad was sort of the 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 poor final child who didn't benefit from the stability that his older, you know, that his older siblings got. But they were definitely, you know, he knew he kind of had to compete with people like that, even though he was sort of growing up on the road while they traveled around with everything they owned tied to the car. And uh, his older brother and sister were already off doing things that they were doing in the world, but they were always a role model of one sort or another. And he, you know, I think he felt like he had to uh, intellectually live up to a model that they were setting. Let's talk about their nephew a little bit, because I think this is interesting. Here, here you have had this uh, this sort of ringside seat doll of this, Bo, and you yourself, you're 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 always working on something of your own. Uh, what are you What are you toying with right now? You you were talking about the Stanford, Res, you know, research center, and that kind of got my mind going on, uh, on, uh, on some topics there. But but what are you, what are you working on right now? What do you find interesting? Well, I'm I'm not entirely sure what you're asking. I'm finishing up Lost Treasures. That's still uh, <laughs> that's still something that that has a few. Okay. There's a few more postscripts 
to be to be managed and uh i'm not yet to the point where i'm planning the next um you know whatever the next project will be but there's this i mean at the moment i'm kind of hip deep in uh in corporate administration (laughs) so nothing uh, fun on the on the workbench personally not at the moment i'm hoping that in the future there'll be things but at the the moment i'm unfortunately my desk is covered with excel spreadsheets (laughs) that's no fun i mean that's not exciting so but it's necessary isn't it i mean that's necessary it's part of it the type is very small and i've been bending over these things for so many weeks i've got my neck out so uh, you know, at, at the moment, I'm just doing the, the necessary sort of uh, things to, to keep the family business running. I had a friend that sent out this uh, this picture, and it, it was it was really poignant. It said, "Here, it was the differences between busy people and productive people," and and I'm I'm squarely in the busy category right now. So <laughs> so 2020 is not going to be busy. I've decided it's not going to be busy. It's going to be it's going to be productive. Your, your dad was a productive guy, wasn't he? Yeah, no, he, he was, he was extremely motivated, you know, probably because he'd spent so many tough years and he felt that his career had been interrupted. Uh, it had taken a long time to launch, um, and a long time for him to really learn his craft. And then right when he was getting going, um, world war two, hit and it was you know he had to restart his career completely after the war and then the magazine fiction business collapsed and he had to start again and created and create a new career for writing novels and uh you know by that time he was he was pushing 50 Mm. and um and so he didn't really get to the point where he could enjoy um any you know, any certain amount of uh, wealth or celebrity or anything like that until maybe the last decade of his life. And so he he was working very hard and he was very, you know, he was very motivated. But, um, you know, when you talk about the difference between busy and productive, he was very productive, but, um, you know, it's interesting. His whole thing was, you know, get your butt in the chair and, and, and type, new stories and just produce more and more and more and more. And the fantastic thing about it, um, the kind of mind bending thing about it was, um, I'm still straightening out the, the debris that he left (laughs) behind. I mean, he was, he was so, he was so productive that I don't even think he had any idea how much stuff he was creating or where he put it or anything else. I mean, it just, uh, there's, you know, it's, it's only been the last few years and he's been gone for over 30 that, uh, that I really feel like, you know, we finally got to the end of organizing all the stuff he left behind. How often do you hear his voice in your head when you're working on this stuff? Oh, not at all. I mean, I, I mean, you're talking, you know, I, I, mean, I, I, I kind of know what you're, I kind of know what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, do you, um, you said but, one time that you, you, you have his styles figured out the different genres, but, but I'm wondering how often it just, you're able to pull that out or is it just mechanical at this point? I, I, well, I think my being able to write in various styles that he had throughout his career um, is not really the same thing as hearing his voice. And uh, dad's um, dad's writing was 
fairly different from his actual personality. So those, those two things are, are separate from, from one another. And, uh, you know, I know fans don't like to hear this. They really like to feel like, you know, if they if they read a particular writer, they really understand that person from reading their professional output. Um, but my take on that, everybody is welcome to their own, you know, to their own uh, opinion on it. But my take on that is that, you know, almost everybody that I've ever met um, who is a creative type person in one way or another uh, has a difference between their personal voice and their professional voice. And, um, you know, you, if you, if you live and work around Hollywood, you always see it when you see some completely inarticulate kind of numb nuts actor, um, who you've, you've worked with and, you know, when they're, when they're in their personal space and they're not acting or just when they're in their, I'm worrying about what I'm about to do um, personality before they actually go on stage or in front of the cameras and do their thing. You know, they're kind of a, they're kind of a bundle of neuroses and then they step out and they do the thing that they're professional at and they're incredibly buttoned up, you know, and they knock it out of the park and then you see them on a talk show or something and they're speaking like they're actually a normal person and they actually live their life making sense. And you, you go, no, these are three totally different people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's sort of the private person, right. there's the professional person, and then there's the public person. And, and those are, those are three totally different personalities. So dad was different than his writing. Um, you know, it's like, uh, I, I deal with his personal personality all the time as I just try to try to execute the things he left behind in a way that he'd be proud of. Um, and I, you know, I can perform some, uh, some of the styles of his writing to the point where I can't tell where I did it and where I didn't. Um, and there's, and there's one, you know, kind of the last sort of style of writing that he had in his life, which was a little more kind of flowery use of language and things like that, which I'm not, I'm not very good at that one. But luckily he was, you know, what he was doing was so buttoned up by that point that I don't really ever have to, I don't really ever have to jump in and, uh, and pull that apart. Now, just as a caveat to all of that, because I've been talking about saying, oh, I'm to do this writing as my dad and I do this and I do that. Um, we've never made up a, uh, you know, we've never published anything where I or anyone else was writing as Louis L'Amour. Um, you know, there's never, there's never been a, a whole story that was, you know, that was kind of made up and stuck out there that nobody's ever faked being Louis L'Amour. Where I have done that is where I've gone in and and fixed things that weren't finished or needed to be polished or needed this or needed that, whatever it was. Um, you know, if anyone, if anyone ever doubted whether or not somebody else was writing the Louis L'Amour novels, I just welcome them to read <clears throat> Louis L'Amour's Lost Treasures volumes one and two, which is, you know, at, at over 30 unfinished works. If we were interested in faking it, we we would be finishing those. But so, you know, I try to, 
I try to make his material as enjoyable as possible to the public. And I also try and leave it alone as much as possible, depending on, uh, you know, try and strike a balance between those two things. I think it's great. And I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from, uh, from your dad and uh, from his writings. And I think it's, I think it's a lot of fun at the, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, right? It's about hearing a good story. And, uh, and now, uh, the second volume of Louis L'Amour's lost treasures are, are out. Bo, how, how did, how did I do? Okay, we're at the I end. I think now. you did very well. Is it, is I think this, you did great. Is this going to be a conversation worth having around a table with other people? You think? I have no idea. <laughs> Just no help. <laughs> Well, it's a conversation we had. Yeah, it's a conversation so, yeah. we had. I Absolutely. hope. I hope that. Uh, I hope someone else will come on and have a conversation because I, I think these are important. I think you know you. When I asked you to do this, you said, "Well, what's this about? What's this about?" Well, now and I have I, a little better idea. I think. I think this is what it's about. And uh, anyway, I'm going to leave it there. But uh, Bo Lamore, thanks for coming on the first episode here of uh, the History We're Saving podcast. I don't know what we're going to call the other things we've done this far, but this is a podcast, right? This was right down the, the line of a podcast. No edits. Thanks, Bo. Appreciate your help. Thank you. Take care. Find more History Worth Saving at historyworthsaving.com. I'm Matt Jolly. Now go meet your neighbors. See you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.